Hello and welcome back to There Was an Idea, a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. I'm your host, TK, a teacher and pop culture enthusiast. And in this episode, I'm joined by a first-time guest. He is a professor of English and a writer and a person with a ton of comic book and comic book movie history knowledge. His name is Jonathan Evans, and he joins me to reflect on some of the most recent releases in the MCU, as well as to share part of the presentation that he gave at the Popular Cultural Association Conference in April 2022. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can follow me for updates and behind the scenes extras at anidea underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. You can also support the podcast by purchasing There Was an Idea merchandise through Spring. And if you'd like to participate in the 100th episode special, please stay tuned until the end of the episode to hear more about how to do that. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Today, I am thrilled to welcome a brand new guest to the show. I am joined by writer, podcaster, and educator Jonathan Evans. Jonathan, welcome to There Was an Idea, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you here. You and I met virtually in April when we both presented at the Popular Cultural Association 2022 National Conference. We were both presenters in a session called Explaining the Superhero, that was chaired by Hannah, one of the hosts of the Vox Popcast, who has also appeared on this show. So shout out to Hannah and also shout out to Mav of the Vox Popcast as well, because he was actually the first one to encourage me to uh, submit a proposal to PCA. And I'm really glad that I did because it was a super fun experience. And I get I got to connect with with people like you. So why don't you tell listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do? All right. Well, um. Yeah, I'm also really glad. It was wonderful. I loved your yours and Hannah's presentations. And I could just see at first when I looked at it, I thought, how do we connect? And then after listening to all our presentations, like, no, I see it now. They did a great job matching us up. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, um, I'm I'm currently, I have a PhD in rhetoric. Um, I uh, My bachelor's is in history and I've got a lot of interdisciplinary interests. So across the board, I minored in philosophy. I'm a little all over the place, which is why ending up with a PhD in rhetoric kind of worked out for me because it means I can kind of dabble in a little bit of everything. Uh, but I teach at Claflin University, which is a private HBCU in South Carolina. Um, and I have over since about 2015 have really been working in more and more of my own love of comic books and things of that nature into what I and how I teach. I teach a lot of English composition classes. Um, and this past spring, I got to teach my very first real special topics where we dealt with comic books and culture. And it was a real blast. I really had a fun time. Most of the time, it, that's one of the few times where I wasn't adapting the things I'm interested in into a class. Um, instead, I was letting the class revolve around the things I'm interested in. So cool. Previously, I had done a class about uh, film adaptation where I had used some superhero films as well. But for the most part, I'm adapting comic books and comic book scholarship to be used in the actual classroom itself. I love it. Anytime that I talk to educators, specifically at the college and university level, who are incorporating nerd culture <laughs> in some way, um, <laughs> um, honoring what these comic book stories can tell us about some larger ideas about the, the human condition and tying it into these ideas about philosophy and history and um, and rhetoric, I mean, Totally up my alley. So it, it's really exciting to talk to you about this stuff. Oh, I, I'm actually moving in the direction of creating more myself, too. Um, oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, I, I have some artistic talent that I, I'm trying to rehone and get better at because I once wanted to be an architect. And so I'm very good at 
architectural black and white landscapes. And one of the things that I, I mentioned earlier off pod about my annoyance of my brother and his <laughs> super artistic talent that he doesn't use is that he was so much better at drawing people and drawing people in action. And I could do it a little bit. And I did some of it in high school, um, but I used to draw my own little comics and I'm getting kind of back into it because now I'm actually incorporating it into part of an actual book that I'm finishing and revising now. So I want to actually make it part of the uh, a multimodal blending oh. aspect uh, to some of the stuff and bring even the, the creation process of it more into the academic world just as much. I mean, one of my people who I admire quite a lot, Nick Sosanus, um, he wrote his dissertation and he published it as a called Unflattened. And it's, it's all a graphic novel. It's wonderful. So that academic... Uh, space there in the creation part. And I've actually written a script for a graphic novel that's uh, where I'm working with an artist by the name of Aaron Benson. And we have a publisher who we're working out with the University of South Carolina Press to write a graphic novel about the Orangeburg Massacre, which is actually an event that took place in 1968, no more than 100 yards from my office. But so few people know about it. And I didn't know about it until I came to Claflin. And so I'm kind of following in the mold of, shall we say, like, Andrew Iden and Nate Powell and people like that who worked with John Lewis to create and bring to life uh, civil rights narratives because it falls within that purview. That's wonderful. <laughs> I'm working on finishing a book and unfortunately the f- finishing of it revision process has turned into a whole little, I literally sat down, looked at it and said, okay, I'm going to redo the whole thing. So oh, wow. I'm torturing myself. Well, I decided well, the original was all script and it was based on my dissertation. And when I got it back and went through the peer review process and it was a mixed peer review process, they wanted some serious revisions. And I'm like, okay, but when I started looking at it for serious revisions, I started going, you know what? I want to take this seriously and I want to make it something new and not the same old, same old academic book. Sure. And so I'm turning my entire preface into a comic, a small comic book. And oh, then I want to turn cool. the beginning of I want to turn the beginning of each chapter into like a mini one page sort of segueing into each chapter. And so I'm getting, I'm trying to get real creative with it because I'm like, if you're going to make me take another shot at the apple here, I want to do it. Let's see how creative I can make this. So I'm probably adding a ton of extra work, but I want to make this, I want to make this book stand out because one of the things that was asked in the peer review comments would be about, would this be an academic book you would want to add to your collection? And it was like a yes and a no. And I'm like, I want to make it a yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I want this to be something that stands out. So I'm like, we're going to push it. And then that one is specifically about Superman um, versus Donald Trump as models for what America thinks it wants to be and a very nutshell type thing. I'm very fascinated by the idea and the power of models as rhetorical conveyors of what we want to be, who we think we want to be, the kind of things we should want to stand up for. Mm-hmm. And I think outside of the Marvel cinema or the, just the Marvel universe, if you want to do analogs here, Superman is DC as Marvel is Captain America kind of. I mean, if you want to play sure. the, the analog game, that's kind of where you kind of come around with either one of them. And so I became very fascinated. My dissertation was actually on Superman. And so I really wanted to revisit that. And of course, that ties back into my PCA um, presentation that I, I think we can talk about later. Mm-hmm. But then uh, I was approached at a conference. And I was actually approached at the PCA conference, too, about that presentation. So later this summer, I've got to finish writing a book proposal for the one that I presented at the PCA conference. 
I've actually been approached now twice, both of them through conferences. So it's an encouragement. If you're out there, folks, and you think you have something you want to say, submit stuff to conferences. You don't know when things will happen. You will get solicited if someone likes your idea. So that is. I want to put that out there for everybody out there who's thinking about it. Just keep at it. Because you never know, you'll hit on something, and they and those people who are those publishers, they're reading those conference uh, little outlines of who's presenting what, and they're looking at those things. And if they see something that jumps at them, you never know, you might get an email solicitation. Jonathan, thank you for that bit of advice and encouragement. I, I'm definitely taking that to heart, and I'm sure some listeners will as well. And thank you for sharing about your your ideas that you're putting out there into the world and your book sounds really fascinating, both in in content and in the format that you're pursuing. So thanks for sharing all of that. I'll share, I'll, I'll send you the, my new, uh, my new table of contents and let you take a look at when I get it done. I'll let you take a peek at it. You might find it interesting. And I would love to, I'm always, I'm a very collaborative person. I love to hear new ideas and I love to share them because you know what? Academics, we got to hammer and hammer away at this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like if you, you know, my my advice there is I want to be encouraging. Because I understand the frustration and I understand we all have it. And it's good to know that you're not alone. You know? Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, when I we are going to talk about your PCA presentation in a little bit and yeah. give listeners a, a chance to hear your ideas and your central thesis, which I thought was incredibly fascinating when when I heard it at PCA. And it's on just as a, a preview, it relates to both the Snyderverse and the MCU and and contrasting those two worlds. I have to ask, because the first question that we always ask here at There Was an Idea is, what is your relationship to the Marvel Cinematic Universe specifically? So I I can think back, and I have been a regular comic book reader since about 1991, when I was about 11 years old. Just I'll go ahead and date myself. It's (laughs) fine. Um, But, and I was a Marvel comic book reader Mm -hmm. and originally i was an x-men and eventually i kind of spread out from there and i became interested in iron man so when i was there for all the attempts at making marvel movies and the early aughts and all that stuff and i think i probably saw all of them but when i found out that they were making the iron man movie and for 2008 i was like okay i gotta see what they do here because at that time, Iron Man was a character that I really enjoyed. He's probably up there in one of my top five Marvel characters, just from the comic books alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just, I, I got to see what they do. I got to see how this works. And I was just like blown away with how good it was. And then the fact that they were going to keep going. And I was like, in my, and I was like, this is, this is awesome. Like I was, I was happy. And for me as a fan of comic books to see these adaptations of movies, I'm not a purist. I understand that they're going to borrow and adapt and move things around. I get that whole thing. So I don't sit there and play, oh, well, they didn't, they didn't do this or they didn't do that. I'm like, that's whatever. You know what? I'm happy that they made it. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm happy that they adapted in some ways. And for me as a fan to see the things that I know where that influence comes from is like a little Easter egg for me. You know, right? I don't have to, I don't have to have some sort of pure cult about it, you know, like, if it doesn't blank, you know, blankly adhere to the, you know, with with Wanda with uh, the Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, like, oh, are they going to do House of M? I don't care if they do something like it. Great, mm-hmm. you know, let let it go. I mean, 
It's, it's like I don't I just don't I don't spend my time typically engaging in like people's fandoms and I, I sort of mix and dabble and I like to come in and out. And if I find things like in certain fandoms, particularly in the MCU or whatever else where people are getting overtly obsessed and nitpicky, I'm the first person who tunes out. Sure. I'm here for the enjoyment of it. I get to see something that I love on the big screen and the small screen. And I get to see it done well. And I get to see it try new things. And I get to see it maybe fail and then get back up, you know, and try again. And I'm like, that's for me is the beauty of like, you know, the sort of culmination of what you might call the nerd culture or the zeitgeist of comic books these days, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of my general feeling about the Marvel cinematic universe is I, and I do think it is the best one that's being done. I mean, and we can get back to this at the, my talk about the PCA and my criticisms of what DC has done, but I think Marvel approached it well. And I think Marvel approached it right. And that they, brought in creative people. They had a committee at first that was guiding these things, working together, people collaborating, all things that are right up my alley. Mm -hmm. But that's reflective in such a good product as well for me. Before then, Kevin Feige took it over and now Kevin Feige is opening it back up to people like Taika Watahiti and all these other creative artours to come in and try new things too. And they built up a solid base. I mean, that was the thing that really impressed me shall we say, counter to what DC did, is that Marvel built this like by solid bricks. And now that they've got that solid base, there's so much more they can open themselves up to because, you know, the most of the world may not know, but comic books are crazy. (laughs) They can be nuts, you know? I like that idea of kind of building up the base, building up the trust, making people feel comfortable, easing people in before kind of uh, beginning to go off the rails a little bit more in terms of form and content to your point. In I mean, if you, can, yeah, you, mean you can look at like, you can look at it like this, like think about phase one. Okay. So you had, you had Iron Man, you technically had the incredible Hulk, you had Thor, you had Captain America, and eventually you get to Avengers. And right there, you've just got a nice solid core. You're building in your major characters and along the way in like what Thor and Iron Man two, you're dropping in black widow and Hawkeye. And so you're building this nice little, the beginnings of your base there. And then you hit it out of the park with Avengers and you got a good thing going. And then rather than just go crazy yet, you just continue to build. And of course you have some setbacks, you know, maybe Thor Dark World wasn't necessarily everybody's favorite. I mean, nothing's going to be perfect, but there are pieces along the way that you lay down this, you know, if you don't want to think about it, but the building, think about it as like, you know, creating a universe. You're, you're really filling in the details here of something that's solid. And then once you have that, that from which you can launch, you can then do all kinds of creative things. I mean, by the time you get to say like Thor Ragnarok, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, is that movie a nutcase in a bag? But you know what? <laughs> I love it. It's like, it's my number one, honestly, still, still my number one. And if you think about my, if I go like my top 10 Marvel movies, that's number one. Number two is Captain America Winter Soldier. Oh, amazing. I like that one because I love the fact that we had Robert Redford and we're doing a political, almost spy spoof. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you have, I think after that, I think you, I think Endgame, which is, you know, I just like the good culmination. I love Black Panther. I like a lot of them that are bringing in that diversity. And that's the thing you can really do once you build this, you know, solid basis, you can then really start to diversify. Because, I mean, if you look down the line at what characters are going to be coming into TV, we've got Miss Marvel. Mm-hmm. We've got a Pakistani girl, you know, who's going to be the star. 
with Hawkeye, you had you had what's your echo? We're now gonna have a deaf, an actual deaf actress playing, and then the same thing in Eternals. You know, we right. have this greater sense of representation, which some people get all ruffle their feathers about, but I'm like, oh, go away. <laughs> I don't have time for that. I see people who use this term and it's reemerged because of the She-Hulk trailer that just came out, which I don't even know what that show is going to be about. It looks fun, though. It I looks don't wacky as hell, and I'm here it for it. It looks wacky. It looks fun. <laughs> it looks like it's going to be a blast. And I'm like, that's great. And you know what? But I keep hearing people, these little, shall we say, people who I really dislike who call the M-She-You. Oh, gosh. And these are these people who complain about the fit. And you know what? I don't have time for those people. Those people are a waste of time and energy. Go away. I, I, I'm like the antithesis of what I feel like comics and comic book culture is supposed to be about. Just go away. Don't have time for you. I love it all. You know, mm-hmm. there's not much of it I don't like, um, to be quite honest. And I'm loving that. I'm looking really looking forward to seeing Love and Thunder. Yeah. Like that one's like, oh, that's going to be nuts. What a great trailer. Yeah, that was a fun one, too. And I'm like, all right, Jane Foster with the hammer. Let's do this. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so. funny you mentioned some of those snarky critiques from trolls on the internet because these characters she hulk and jane foster as thor like there is comic precedent for these stories and the fact that these stories these characters are being brought to the big screen that the the fandom the world like the movie producers whoever it might be are are ready to see uh more of these female characters is awesome it's something to be celebrated if you're if you're a comic book fan i would think well i think if you're a real comic book fan and you actually appreciate the fact that comic books has for a very long time been a refuge for people right and minorities and you know i know people look at it and go oh well it's it's very lily white and very masculine well well if you really look at the history of things and you go back far enough the comic code of 1954 is really what really made it that way in a lot of ways. Because if you go pre-comic book code, you had so much going on there and you had so many minorities, you had more voices. And a lot of them did end up in the underground comics, but got way more voices, females, males, African-Americans. You had way more going on there that then kind of got stomped on by culture mm. at large. But now it's coming back. And I'm like, this is not unprecedented. This is a return to something that has finally come back. And, you know, we're we're finally letting it back in. And we've we've kept it alive long enough for that to happen, which I think is great. Yeah, that's awesome. And thinking about where the MCU is going, thinking about this phase four that we're currently in, a couple of the latest releases, we just finished the run of Moon Knight on Disney Plus, and of course, recently Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which talk about wacky a little bit. I think in different ways, both of these new installments represent uh, some of, yes, in the case of Doctor Strange, some familiar characters who have been part of this cinematic universe for for a while, um, but definitely going in some bold new directions, or at least to a certain extent. What do you think of these latest? installments maybe we'll start with moon knight what did you think of moon knight did it surprise you in any any way and uh how to what extent do you think it is representative of this of this bold new future for the mcu i i really enjoyed moon knight Knight on a couple levels i i was only vaguely familiar with the character he's popped on my radar 
sometimes back in the 90s and my early days of comic book reading. But I, I really tried to, when I realized they were going to make a show, and boy, Oscar Isaac, man. Amazing. Oh, that man is so talented. And it's so much, and it's, it's to me, I cannot help but laugh thinking that he played Apocalypse in the X-Men universe. <laughs> right. That I'm like, oh, we're back in Egypt. Yay. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. That didn't happen here. Okay. But like, you know, I, I started going back and I started realizing, I mean, I knew there was a lot more to Moon Knight and he kind of been in the periphery of things I was interested in. Because as I've gotten older in my comic book collection, I've sort of skewed into a lot of different areas. I found myself when I was younger, I was very enjoyed stories that were that were art driven. I've become more story driven. And so I started really kind of digging back because I wanted to prepare myself for Moon Knight. And I, I noticed our, your guest last week had talked about a certain run of Moon Knight. Well, the one that I read is the Jeff Lemire, Greg Smallwood one. Okay. Um, and that one is actually set with Mark Spector in an insane asylum. Wow. Okay. That one is very closely tied into what we saw in five and six and the end of episode four of Moon Knight. So I was like, oh, okay. So it's it's sad that we, may, I, I do hope there is a season two only because I really would like to see some of his more supporting cast mm. pop up. Because I mean, there's cast like there's Frenchie, uh, which we did catch a glimpse of him. If you think about an episode one, when he finds, when Stephen finds Mark's phone. That's right. right and there's a bunch right, of missed yeah. cars, missed calls. The Ducamp, that's Frenchie. He had one missed call from him and then all the other ones were from Layla. And I was like, oh, okay. So maybe we'll get to see him. And then of course, you know, I know everybody talks about Jake Lockley and everybody was wondering whether he was there. And I'm like, well, if you want to know where Jake, where Jake Lockley appears, I think if you go into season three, or sorry, not season three, episode three, and you see the scene when Layla finds him on the streets and he's wearing the black baseball cap, I'm pretty certain from people I've talked to that that's actually Jake Lockley right there. Oh. With the baseball hat on. And then we definitely see him again in episode five when we're cutting between Mark and Steven, and there is one of them who has the bandage across his nose. Yeah. That's also Jake. And I mean, that's when we really like, okay, that's definitely him. So he's there, but it's really interesting how he's like a silent partner. Yeah. But like I said, I really enjoyed Moon Knight. I think it was really interesting. I like the whole investigation of the psychology elements that they they wove into that yeah i agree and and to your point i think there's so much more that they can do in that world and of course we're going to see moon knight the character again in the mcu and it's kind of what sean and i were talking about last week is you know is he going to just i don't mean to say like just show up in other other movies you know but is he is he going to show up in other movies or are we going to see more of the world and the secondary characters associated with him there's certainly a lot that they could dig into there I would love to see both, honestly. I'd like to see both. Yeah. Because there is a part for him um, if they're doing what they sort of seem to be doing with um, Black Knight and Blade. Mm-hmm. I think it's more than certain now that we're, most people assume that the voice off camera who tells Dane Whitman about touching the sword, the ebony blade, are you sure you want to do that? We're pretty, I'm pretty certain for most of it, everybody seems to assume that that's Blade warning him. Right, yes. And so if that's true and we're going in the direction of Midnight Suns, then that's an opportunity right there for Moon Knight to slip right in with them. Because I think that is a team he has been associated with. Okay, that's a a team? Yes. Um, Ghost Rider has also been a member of that team. So 
tease there about whether or not we'll we'll see Ghost Rider return in the MCU. But it feels like maybe they're building this team over here, off in the shadows a little bit, because that's kind of where that team tended to operate, is that they were often kind of like the dark places. Oh, Black Knight is something someone I was really glad to see in Eternals, just because even though he didn't have much of a role, I'm like, I love the Black Knight as a character. Yeah, and to see such a minor character get a nice little part in there and a nice little tease, I was like, oh, yeah, come on. It's so cool. It's so amazing to me how many corners of this sprawling world there are still left to uncover and to bring from from the page to the screen. And that's what makes me excited about, you know, just being a fan of this franchise and, and being someone who thinks that this this franchise and these stories and these worlds are are worthy of spending time with analyzing, thinking about the fact that there are um, still so many characters and different directions that it can go off in is incredibly exciting. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm also curious to hear your take on Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Have you had a chance to see it more than once at this point? I've only, I've only got to see it once. Mm-hmm. And it was funny to me because I am a, my wife and I got to go see it and She's a fan of Sam Raimi, but she's only a fan of Sam Raimi in terms of she's seen his Spider-Man films. Okay. I've seen Sam Raimi as in like Evil Dead and Army of Darkness, and I could not help but just like, mm-hmm, yeah, there it is. I can see. I see that. And like, there's a shot when at the at uh, the wedding, Palmer's wedding, when she's walking on the balcony, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, that's her. I could just, I felt myself like finding Sam Raimi things. And then when Bruce Campbell is punching himself. I'm yes. like, okay, am I an army of darkness here? And to me, it was like an inside joke and I'm laughing and my wife is looking over at me and I'm like, you haven't seen that apparently. Got it. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a joke that I'm particularly laughing at for a very particular reason, because that is a throwback reference to me that I liked. And I mean, I enjoyed a lot of the, here's how I think about it. If I was to sum up Dr. Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. I do not think it's a perfect movie. In fact, at this moment, it is not in my top 10 for only one reason. It has not really filled out where it's going and what are the ramifications. Because films that tend to make my top 10 are all happen to be films that have the ramifications already involved in them. Okay. But like films that are up and coming for me that are like going to probably move up the ranks are like The Eternals. Mm-hmm. Because what I want to see is what happens next. We've kicked a door open. I want to know where that door leads. And when I start seeing where that door leads, that to me is only going to increase the the attention and the appreciation I'm going to have for that film. And I do appreciate them almost every Marvel MCU film, period, just because I think with the exception of quite a few, most of them all have something unique or interesting or produce some sort of larger ramifications. And I think Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and Eternals perhaps have two of the largest going forward um, ramifications for what's going to happen next, like on a cosmic level. And and I will add to that, I'll add Loki Mm -hmm. to that as well. Loki and what if, and and even Wanda and her role in all this, but we're, we're kicking in, we're kicking in this multiversal door and we're going bigger and more cosmic with the Eternals, you know, like where we're basically about to judge humankind in a sense. Yeah. And if anybody, by the way, if anybody ever wants to, I want to throw this out here. If anybody's interested in just having a really interesting read that digs into kind of the 
stuff behind the Eternals. If you don't want to go digging through, and it's not a bad idea that you go read Jack Kirby stuff, but there's a Neil Gaiman run that was on Eternals that was quite fascinating too. But as a general Marvel history one, I recommend Earth X. Okay. Um, that you, Earth X and Universe X were runs that were done in the early 2000s, I think late 90s, early 2000s. Um, kind of on the heels, Alex Ross did the covers for them. So they were kind of on the heels of Marvel, of Marvels and all that. But they do a job of kind of exploring all the ways that different forces like the Kree and the Eternals have influenced the development of humankind at different places. And it dives into the Eternals and the Deviants and all of that stuff. It's kind of like a, a general introduction. So it's, it's a good place that if you want to kind of get a snapshot for how that kind of works, at least in the comic book realm, the ways that these different hosts are connected and the ways that they've influenced the development of humankind. And if you really like enjoyed the Eternals and things like that, I think it's a really good thing to look into because I enjoyed it back in the day and I could see elements of that going on, even in, say, Captain Marvel with the Kree, mm-hmm. who appear to have been visiting Earth as well. And of course, we don't even know yet about the scrolls. That much beyond, you know, the fact that obviously two of them are currently on Earth impersonating Hill and (laughs) Fury, you know, which I'm certain we'll get something of that with, you know, what's coming up with Secret Invasion. So there's a lot of things that are going on there. And I think that's, I I want to throw that there as a recommendation for anybody who's really interested in like, you know, wants to know a little bit more, but doesn't maybe have the time to go like on a full deep dive, you know. Thank you. I appreciate the recommendation a lot. You said it's called Earth. X. Let me let me let me get the author here real quickly because I think that'll help. It's Earth X and Universe X are the two, and let me see Earth X. Alex Ross is he is the cover artist for it, but I'm trying to remember who else is the writer. Jim Kruger, okay, K R U E G E R, and uh, John Paul Leon are the, is the interior artist with Ross doing the cover art, and that's that's Earth X. That's a really good starting point. Sounds but it's like set in kind of like a future version of the Marvel Universe where things have altered. And along the way, you kind of go back and find out how it all got started, all kinds of stuff. It's very interesting. Sounds like it. There's so much. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's one of those ones I've been meaning to go back and reread, honestly. Because I feel like they're they're tinkering with it right now with some of the stuff they're doing with the Marvel Universe. But like I think with Doctor Strange, Doctor Strange is very much the new one has really... If nothing else, it kicked the door to the multiverse wide open that we've been kept getting teased with. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's like said, OK, here it is. And I broke I'm going to kick the door open. And guess what? I forgot to I, I broke it. It's open now. I, I broke the handle. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of what I feel like we've done, which, of course, means in some way or another, particularly if you take the end tag with uh, Clea. Right. Who is, you know, Dr. Strange's wife. I was like, oh, and I didn't realize who it was, but my wife quickly looked up and she said, oh, it's Clea. I'm like, oh, it's Clea. I was like, oh, wait, okay, so that's who that is. And it looked like she was taking him to Dormammu in the dark dimension. And I was like, well, she is his niece. She is Dormammu's niece. I was like, oh, that's right. There is a family resemblance. There is a family connection. (laughs) Yeah. Not sure how they're going to make that work in the MC universe because they've kind of changed some of that. But I'm like, okay. But now they're talking about incursions. Yes. And I'm like, okay, are we doing Secret Wars? Because if we are, I mean, we're going to need to introduce the Fantastic Four. I'm going to need Doctor Doom. Mm. We're going to do this right. So, and there's so much. But that's what I enjoyed most about Doctor Strange was like that. I, I I really did enjoy the fan service of getting to see John Krasinski as Mister Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed seeing uh, Maria Rambo 
back as this time she was the one who went on the flight with Marvel. Yes. You know, and yeah. not Carol. And I love seeing Captain Carter again. That was fun because I enjoy her in the what ifs. Uh, the what if cartoons I really, really, really like. I liked what they built. And it was wonderful for me in particular because I really appreciate that it was the last time I got to hear Chadwick Boseman yeah. perform. Yes. Because I like, I, I pretty much cried after the first episode when they did a dedication. I was like, but I was just so happy to see him come back and see what they did with that and how he, though, even, even the watcher became threatened, you know? Yes. So I'm curious to see how that ties together. And then of course, how that ties together with what now has been unleashed through Loki, because it seems to me that maybe we won't get Dr. Doom, but we're definitely going to get Kang. That should be fascinating. Yeah. And I, you know, hearing you reflect on this too, and this idea of kicking the doors open really gets me thinking about my own relationship to the early phases of the MCU, which is, you know, enjoying the films as they came out, but then not really having a full appreciation for the interweaving tapestry until after it was kind of clear where there were some phase markers and where, you know, so to speak, some of these doors led to. And so any any installment that is currently coming out, and of course, they've become more frequent, especially with the Disney Plus shows, there's more of them. But I have to kind of remind myself, like, there's my first impression of the film, my, the film as it stands right now and how it connects to what may have come before. But then there's also, to your point, looking ahead, you know, what is Moon Knight or Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness going to feel like a year to five years down the line when the MCU has grown even even uh, wider and how we're going to have an opportunity to see how play things play in. Because I've yeah. talked on this show many times about how in retrospect, some of the earlier installments um, feel more, more satisfying upon rewatch because of those doors that, that led somewhere else. Yeah, no, like I said, I mean, that's why, even though like, you know, Dr. Strange two and the Eternals isn't in my top 10 right now, that's why I say they're going to keep climbing yeah. because they have thrown out seeds on the wind that are going to land and they're going to grow. And I want to see what grows out of them. And you were talking about your experience with phase one. And I, I think that was something that I thought was truly brilliant about how they started using the end tags yeah. as ways of kind of throwing the connective tissue together. And I don't know if you noticed this, but this was something that caught, that got on my radar hard in some of the TV series, Julia Louise Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. Madam Hydra basically is who that is. And she's recruiting like Nick Fury. Yeah. And I'm like, she's already basically attempted in some ways than at the end of black widow with um, Natasha's sister. Mm -hmm. And at the end of uh winter, uh, you know, Falcon and winter soldier with Walker and I'm like, and I know everybody likes to talk about the fact that we've also been setting up an idea for a potential young Avengers. Yes. Because we've been laying the groundwork for that. We basically introduced almost everybody on the team at this point. Um, but I think it's interesting the fact that we're almost setting up like this dark Avengers or these Thunderbolts kind of avenue over here in the side as well. Like there's just so many threads out there. And it's strange to say that it feels reckless, but if there's one group of people I feel that could do it right, it's Kevin Feige in the Marvel universe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like there, there, there is so much going on here and I know they're going to string it together, 
And I'm fascinated to see how that's going to happen because it's slightly exhilarating and terrifying because you don't know, you can't see the future yet. You know, it makes me think it's almost like, I feel like I'm, I'm back at the F at the last episode of Loki and he who shall not be named is warning them. I can't see beyond this point. Ooh, yeah. And this is the point where you, and I'm like, that's where we are in the Marvel universe right Great now. Connection. We have walked, we are at that moment when Sylvie stabs him and we have uncut everything. And it feels like we're headed for like, you know, we talk about incursions and they mentioned the idea of a multiversal war. That's an incursion. I mean, there's groundwork inside of there as well. Mm-hmm. That's just sort of leading us to understanding um, that we're we're laying serious groundwork for something massive. And I do think it's Secret Wars. And if you want to talk about having something like the Young Avengers or any of that stuff, you could always rewrite it when the Secret Wars is done. Because if we do go the direction of Secret Wars, when it's over, we can basically reboot everything if we want to. Wow. That would be the end game there, possibly. If we go in the direction of the way Jonathan Hickman um, constructed the last Secret Wars, which I just actually reread myself um, because that's where he took, they took all the Earths and all the alternate universes and they clashed them into each other and they had to fight each other and they usually both ended up getting destroyed. Doom, along with Doctor Strange, basically works to save our Earth, 616. Um, and there are remnants who survive from the Ultimates universe as well. That's how Miles Morales crossed over. Okay. So, but first of all, they all ended up in basically a battle world where Doom had made himself a god emperor and erased everybody's memory. And the only people who knew what about the truth was Doctor Strange, who was there with him at the beginning, and um, the people who survived. There were a few survivors from both universes. I think both Reed Richards survived. So that's the interesting thing is if we're going to do this and we don't have Tony Stark anymore, I feel like we're definitely going to have to bring Reed Richards in to kind of lead that the way you saw him in the Illuminati, you know, in that. And I, and I still cannot help how much I loved Professor Xavier seeing him again. Yeah, That was wonderful. Too bad. Wanda snapped his neck. Well, I say <laughs> no, Scarlet Witch snapped his neck. Um. Yeah, because he was obviously inside her mind, which was a strange place. Mm-hmm. Now, so, and I think that's an interesting dynamic going forward. Is that I don't, I, I'm barely more than con- convinced that Wanda's not dead. I think she might be lost, but I think it's interesting what she did and that sacrificial role she played at the end. But I'm interested to see what happens with her arc going forward. Mm-hmm. Is she going to be on a redemptive course? And is she going to overcome the sort of internal struggle? Because I feel like they turned her into this universe's version of Jean Grey. Mm-hmm. Where it's, is it Jean Grey or is it the Phoenix? Is it Wanda or is it Scarlet Witch? They kind of shaped her up to be that kind of version. Yeah, I think that's a great connection. You know, one of the things you said a couple minutes ago that I'm thinking about is how if if anybody can do it, Feige and, and this team at Marvel Studios can do it in terms of uh, how many different avenues they can go with all of these huge, huge ideas and, and interconnecting ideas. And that to me, uh, you know, reminds me of, of, of the presentation that you did give at PCA that we've alluded to, where it was called 
the MCU versus the Snyderverse, ideological mm-hmm. conceptions of the superhero, and it was fascinating. And you were digging into the ways in which these two different worlds, these two different franchises, approach the ideas of um, the roles that these superheroes have, how they relate to other people, and how they relate to even the very idea of being a superhero. And I was hoping that you could share with listeners of this show a little bit about your central thesis and kind of what what drew you to this topic. Yeah, well, the central thesis that I had really gotten burrowed its way into my brain was this idea of how do we think of a superhero? What is their role? How do we conceptualize of them? And I have always found myself at odds going all the way back to 2013. I have always found myself at odds with, and it was something that was there in back of my mind, like a little itch or something that I couldn't scratch with how Snyder had approached Superman. And this was right about the time that I was writing my dissertation. And I don't even really talk about that movie much in my dissertation, which I did in 2014. Um, I tackled it only very tangently. Um, because it wasn't necessarily something that I was focusing on. I was focusing mainly more on the graphic novels, and I spent more time talking about um, the 1978 uh, Donner film instead. Mm-hmm. Because to me, growing up, that was that was my Superman. Christopher Reeves is my Superman. Okay, mm-hmm. I like Henry Cavill a lot, but sorry, Christopher Reeves. Okay, <laughs> and it made me start thinking about this: how do we conceptualize? And I think when we really, and when I really started to boil it down, I mean, the MCU and the Snyderverse, there's a lot of vast different characters. But if I had to, as I started to really think about it, and I really started thinking about what the difference is, and one of the differences that was pointed out to me, and it was inspired by a YouTube video from Screen Crush by Ryan Airy, he was talking about this uh, notion of collectivism versus individualism on these extremes. And he was pointing this out in relationship to Snyder's conceptions of superheroes, particularly, say, Superman since he's kind of a pivotal figure of the DC universe anyway, versus the way that the the Marvel universe had handled theirs, where there is leader. And, you know, it really comes down to the idea, if you really want to manifest to think about what the Avengers are as a team versus the Justice League as a league, you can kind of see what's the difference between a team and a league. And the team is a group of powerful individuals, in this case, working together. And it's very much on display in Avengers. Um even if I think about it, because I've not brought myself to fully finish watching the Snyder Cut. I don't have six hours to spare for that one, but I will eventually, I know, of Justice League. But even in the the Joss Whedon one, that wasn't a team working together. That was basically five individuals kind of haphazardly uh, falling over each other. And I felt like that's a group of individuals who are kind of almost reluctantly working together versus a team of collectively working. And I feel like that's something that was expressive across not just what you saw on screen, but what was also going on behind the scenes. And it really got me interested because I've always had a, like I, I may I mentioned off, uh, off the pod of it earlier was that my minor is in philosophy and I've always had a strange and deep fascination with philosophical ideas. And so I really got into this idea of collectivism and individualism, not so much in the extreme context of them, but in their, general ideas and outlooks about what they are trying to accomplish and what they view is the best way forward. And it clicked for me why I disagreed so much with Snyder's interpretation. 
because it was brought to my attention. And if you looked at it as an individualistic Ayn Rand and her idea of objectivism is a key concept in here. Mm -hmm. And you try to apply it to say a character like Superman, it doesn't work. I mean, I wouldn't have no problem if you wanted to tell me that Batman was an individualist, objectivist, Ayn Randian character. None about that. Nothing about that makes contradictions to me. Sure. But Superman does. Because I always affirm, and I think Glenn Weldon in his unauthor- unauthorized, unofficial biography of Superman said it like this. He said, if you have a Superman story and you boil it down to its essence, you, have, you are left with two things that are always present and consistent in a Superman story, a real Superman story. Let's, let's, let's idea if like a true Superman story and that this is Superman and not some alter ego, bizarro version or anything of that nature. One, he never gives up. Two, he sacrifices for others. That second one is almost completely devoid in Snyder's conceptualization with his use of the individualism. Those superheroes are not, they're special and they don't care. They only care because it has their own self-interest involved. They are in the antithesis of the, you know, the Peter Parker with great power comes great responsibility. For them, it's, I have great power and if it's in my best interest, I'll use it for you. And I feel like the way that, that if you really start dissecting that version of Superman, it's a really unflattering and to me does not feel like Superman. It's like, I'm, I know... I'm a God, um, you know, it, and I'll, I'll help you out, but I'm, I'm not going to do it because I have to. I'm going to do it because, well, I feel like it. I have some interest in the game. And I just don't agree with that. I feel like there's, and, that, and that's because it's, we're cutting against the altruistic. That's something that individualism and particularly Ayn Rand was against was this notion of altruism. And I don't think you can really push hard against altruism. I think it's not to say you have to give in to an extreme version of it where you're constantly self-sacrificing yourself, but there is a need to have altruism for one to fully function as a superhero, as I see it. And that was the thing that kind of bothered me. And I think the Marvel universe provides an interesting counter and it really started emerging to me as I was looking for what's my analog if I'm thinking Snyder's Superman is the pro- is what I consider here to be the problematic version right. of the superhero, where is my Marvel analog? It's not Captain America here, though. Captain America is very firmly within the normal constructs. And if you want to get into another idea here that I, I plan to probably explore in the book that I'm going to write about this, is I'm probably going to return to one of my greatest loves about um philosophical ethics which i'll come back to in just a second but let me give me my give my analog here before i get too off track Mm -hmm. it's iron man Mm -hmm. it's tony stark right he's also the beginning just as superman is the beginning of the snyderverse and here's what i find so fascinating about him the tony stark you meet at the beginning is an ayn rand hero he's incredibly selfish he's self-interested he's individualistic he's not a team player But what you see in his arc throughout the entire MCU, and of course there are stumbles along the way because he's not perfect. It's not a pure trajectory. But you watch him as he absorbs his experiences with the other people for Captain America. Captain America, perhaps the strongest. And he watches, he kind of evolves into a more altruistic person. To the point that he does the thing that, to- that Steve Rogers accused him of being incapable of in Avengers. 
he throws himself on the grenade. Mm-hmm. He does the snap. He's already, and of course, as I mentioned in the thing, oh, you're like, oh, well, that was a self-interested. No, no, no. He knew what he was doing. He just watched what happened to Hulk, who did it. So there's not like a chance that he's not somehow doing this. He knows very well that he's basically doing this to save everybody and to overcome that, perhaps that greatest fear that you kept seeing nightmares he kept having, you know, particularly the ones that Wanda got in his head about. And what, you know, particularly started happening for him after um, after the Battle of New York and Avengers. You watch what happens when he kind of careens off and to this uber altruism to the point where he's literally, and you kind of see it kind of culminate in civil war where he's, he's fluctuating really hard into this altruism of wanting to build an iron suit to protect the earth. And it's, you know, even if you borrow the elements of that, that go back into the comic books and the Marvel civil war by Mark Miller there, you're seeing a struggle mm-hmm. about doing what's good and whether or not it's important to consider the consequences because the version that he's trying to engage in may seem like a really good idea, but it also has seeds in it that are hyper totalitarian, you know, yes, of almost like restricting people's freedoms in order to, and I mean, that's really where him and Captain America clash is that Captain America is, you know, this is, and I'll bring it back to my my fascination with philosophical ethics here because this is where we tie into this. Because if you take Marvel Civil War and you really take it and you look at the movie and you look at what's going on between Captain America and Iron Man, mm-hmm. Iron Man is engaging in, in, in much of his behavior is centered on what we would call a consequentialist or utilitarian outlook on doing the right thing, which means when faced with a choice, he is looking at what are the consequences and he is trying to pick the path with the best possible consequences for everybody. And in contrast to him, Steve Rogers, Captain America, is seeing this from a deontological point of view in which he is concerned about doing the right thing. Yes. Consequences are consequences. We'll deal with them. But the important thing is that you do the right thing because if you fall too far down the rabbit hole with a utilitarian point of view, you'll lie. You'll cheat if you think it'll produce the best outcomes. Mm-hmm. Whereas a deontologist, deontological point of view means you do it. You do what's right. And yes, there may be negative consequences that you'll have to deal with. But the most important thing was you did the right thing. And so I find that and that's something I kind of want to unpack more too, because I've had a long standing fascination with that. And a great example of that, and I, I know I'm going to reference Zack Snyder here again, and I'm, I'm an okay fan with his version of Watchmen, but I think the graphic novel of Watchmen you can break down some very serious deontological versus utilitarian characters in there as well. Fascinating. Not to mention mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like Rorschach. Mm-hmm. Rorschach is a hardcore deontological character. Mr. Dr. Manhattan, utilitarian, same as uh, Ozymandias. Mm-hmm. But, you know, coming back to the MCU, I've, I found that, that debate, that, that kind of concern. And I feel like it's something that's at the top. It's, it's a quintessential for me um concept inside of discussing superheroes you know and i think most superheroes though to really be a superhero tend to lean into the deontological right category if you let if you start sliding too far down into a utilitarian you kind of run more into like an anti-hero kind of ideal so those are some of the things i want to unpack not only the ideological idea of you know if we talk about collectivism it's the notion that we can achieve more together. It's the arguments behind diversity and 
what a lot of what the MCU is doing across the board, not only in the people and the creative teams behind the scenes, but what you're seeing on the screen, both in small and big, versus an individualistic point of view where things can very easily, I think, fall prey to um, one-person visions. And I think that's why it's fair to call the DC universe the Snyderverse, because outside of like Aquaman and Wonder Woman and a few other ones like the newer Suicide Squads, everything is basically built on the groundwork of Zack Snyder's vision, which falls within a very individualistic conception of superheroes as being gods who acted more in their self-interest than in the interest of others. And I think that's where I hit the wall and had that a moment of epiphany with how I found myself in such disagreement with one of my favorite characters and how he interpreted Superman. And it's not to say that there aren't elements of that version of Superman, because if you look at his conflict in the movie between the way he was raised by Kevin Costner and what he starts finding out when he meets his birth father and Jarrell with, you know, Russell Crowe, mm-hmm. there's kind of a, a collective versus individualistic path there. And he ends up kind of choosing the one of what he was raised of with Kevin Costner. So thanks, Kevin, for standing over there and holding your hand up and dying so your son could hide, you know. (laughs) I'm not going to hold that too much against him. Yeah, no. So one of the things that struck me, you had recommended uh, in your presentation the Ryan Airy screen crash video you mentioned. And one of the things that struck me that he said was within the MCU, being a superhero is a privilege and not a right. And service is an honor as opposed to a burden. And he and I I, sounds as if in your research and you're thinking that you agree with him is that in the uh, in the Snyderverse, we're not seeing that we're seeing these um, these heroes act as if the uh, the people who they serve are are more of a burden on them or that it's it's uh, the people they serve who need to prove their worthiness to the heroes as opposed to the heroes needing to prove their worthiness, which we see them constantly struggle with in the MCU. So a question that I have, and I know a little bit about, um, I have some insight into how you might answer this question because I was privy to your presentation, but what accounts for this then, right? Like, so you as as a huge fan of this character, Superman, as an avid comic reader, what accounts for Snyder's uh, very, very different take and interpretation on this character and this portrayal that kind of uh, goes against that altruistic nature that seems so inherent in the character? I think a lot of it has to do with some message and some idea about elements of our culture today. Mm. Um, If you want to take it and think about it this way, a driving notion inside of our culture today is a little bit of a me, 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 Instagram, Twitter, clout chasing, YouTube channels. These are people, there are people out there who are literally being rewarded for chasing their own individualistic self-interests. And I think that part of our culture finds that version of Superman rewarding or interesting. Um, whereas they might see the more altruistic, shall we say, Christopher Reeve Superman as fuddy-duddy. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem I have and what I've always found interesting, and this goes both in my first book and I imagine it will leak over into this one, is within a construct, I think superheroes' greatest power is their ability to model 
for us in the real world, behaviors and things that we should deem important and want to emulate. I love that. Um, This is at the heart of what I'm talking about in my first book with Trump and Superman. Superman, I am positioning him mainly based in the comic book realm, but I touch a little bit on some of the films, mainly sticking in the comic realm as designed to serve as a reminder, a touchstone of human potential. We will never be able to fly. We are never going to have super strength, but that does not mean that we cannot be kind. We cannot help each other. What I like to call the over the covert versus overt powers of, of, of any superhero. The covert powers or the overt powers of any superhero are what can they do? What do you see them doing? Their action, their flashiness, you know, Thor and wielding his hammer, um, Captain America slinging his shield. The covert powers are the things that they can do and what they show us how to be better people. There are moral lessons in there. There are things we can take away from the ways they treat others. You know, they're there helping others, just like firefighters and policemen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they just happen to be doing it against an uptick in the power level. But they're also doing it. And this is something that I thought was very telling. If you look at Man of Steel versus Avengers, is not only do you see a team working in Avengers, of course, but in Man of Steel, there is no concern whatsoever for Metropolis. Yes, yes. None. I mean, it's disaster porn. Yes. Um, and, and I know people like that. People find that entertaining and enjoyment, but it's 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 nutritionless. It's empty calories. It's sugar. That's what it is. Versus, say, if I use Avengers, not only are they taking on the enemy, but they they devise a plan to contain them, to try and limit the damage. Yes. Captain America engages the police and to get them to set up things so they they trying to control the situation to limit the damage they are showing concern for humans the humans are not gnats and insects for them to step on they are the, they are them they have identification they have connection they're not gods yeah you know that's the problem i think with a lot of the snyder's conception is that a lot of his characters are gods they're above and beyond everybody and therefore they're disconnected you know, but the only one who shows any connection or think at all, really, personally, was there's a little bit in Aquaman, a little bit in Wonder Woman, of course, a little bit in Flash, but mainly Batman, mm-hmm. who seems to because he seems to be operating, you know, in that post Man of Steel world from a modus operandi that, you know, Superman is dangerous because he he's the bringer of disaster porn and destruction. You know, part of his motivation seemed to center on that. And I think. It's problematic, I think, because, yeah, it's great if you want a sugar rush, but if you want to take some deeper meaning that could have benefits, and I think at their best, that's what superheroes can do. Agreed. You know, I did a presentation before, um, years ago, before I finished my dissertation, I was doing research, and it was about the ways that Superman's powers have evolved in the way it's depicted, and I took an example from one of his very first stories and one of the very first action comics and I compared it to a very famous scene in All-Star Superman. Most people will be familiar with the scene from All-Star Superman. Um, it's about, a you, you see a girl, she's standing on the ledge of a building. Superman flies behind her, puts his hand on her shoulder, and convinces her it's going to be okay and that she's stronger than she really is. 
it's a wonderful scene. It often gets referenced because there are people who've read that and it made them feel hope. And to me, that's what covertly Superman is about. He's about that helping others and never giving up and that showing and making us feel hope. Not that we should believe in him, but that we can believe in ourselves. It should be a mirror back at us. And what I found fascinating doing the research was that there was another example of a mental illness in one of these early action comics, except it was different. And it was this, it, to me, it spoke of how we conceptualize mental illness between the 1930s and at that time, the 19, the 2000s, because in the, the action comics one, it's a man who is in a gown, who's obviously in the, an insane asylum, who gets on a ledge and then jumps and Superman flies in and saves him at the last moment. And I thought that's very action covert, you know, overt Superman powers on display. Right. And I thought that it contrasted very well with the other version of it, where instead of Superman saving the day from this person who is obviously stereotypingly mentally ill, we see a girl who is, there's nothing discerning about her that says she's mentally ill other than she looks like she's in distress. And that doesn't look so much like a mentally ill person as that looks like another person yeah. because mental illness is not something that like scarlet letters you. You know, we all battle it. And I thought the way that it depicted it in such a positive light, and not only that, she doesn't jump. Superman flies down behind her and puts his hand on her shoulder and re reaffirms to her that she has this own strength. He simply reminds her that she's the one with the real power in her own life. And for me, that's what superheroes are, should be doing. They're there to tell us great stories because that's important. They're to show us fantastic things. They're there to explore strange new worlds. Star Trek, there you go. Mm -hmm. um, but they're also there, I think, in their very best form for us to identify with and to relate to and to feel connection to and to take inspiration from. And for me, that's always the strongest element. Is if I can find myself inspired by a character, I don't care that people complain about, oh, Superman's a hard character to write. Well, if you write him well and you put him in a grand narrative, he works really well, actually, thanks. But... Mm -hmm. If Superman never appeared in another comic book story, he wouldn't disappear. He'd always be there as a symbol of something else, you know, something hopeful, something to aspire to. And one of the things I talked about in my dissertation was I took an example of the two speeches that appear in the original Superman motion picture and the one that appears in Man of Steel. And there's that that one, the Jarrell with Marlon Brando delivering the lines about humanity being a, a people who have potential, you know, that they'll struggle, but you have the ability to show them a better way. And I thought that was very telling, but the way they changed that in Man of Steel, I found a little troubling because Jarrell tells him, yeah, they have potential and they're going to struggle and they're going to stumble behind you. And I'm like, they're going to follow you. They're not, you're not going to help them. And I thought, uh, I don't like that. So I don't know. That's a riff there on my own. I just found that slightly problematic that like that it's a very slight tweak. But I thought the one that, you know, you find in the motion picture one is very designed to say, Superman, you have an obligation to nurture these people, to help them be better versus the Man of Steel one, where it's like they're going to chase after you. Uh, and um, I hopefully they'll be like you one day, you mm -hmm. know. 
Wow. It's like fend for yourselves, fend for the wolves. And, and that ties back to my disagreements with a lot of I'm Randy and objectivism is that this notion that the selfishness is important. And I don't agree. I don't think it applies well to superheroes personally. Really fascinating stuff. There, there's so much that you're speaking to that really resonates with me and my own. It, it's reminding me of the reasons why I am drawn to these stories, why I'm drawn specifically to the MCU, why I'm drawn to some of my favorite characters like Captain America, finding that inspiration. I love that you use the term mirror. I love that you use the term touchstone and touchstone for human potential. Like what a powerful phrase. So thank you for sharing that. And I had also never thought to consider this in terms of the covert versus the overt powers. And I love that that framework for thinking about it. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Before we wrap up here tonight, I am curious to hear if you have any other uh, nuggets of insight, any other big takeaways as to that you can share with us as to why you think the MCU works so effectively at telling superhero stories according to your ideological conception of what a superhero is. Well, that's an easy one because I mentioned it in my PCA presentation very slightly. I think the Marvel Universe works best not only because they they believe in a collective vision of ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, they're really get, they're really leaning into the house of ideas rather than some one person crafting a vision, which I think more can be achieved that way. But I also think, and I know I touched on this, and you were there for that presentation. What Grant Morrison talked about when he talked about the anthropological versus missionary approach yes to comic creators and the missionary approach very much is within that mold of you come to something in this case shall we say uh comic book properties and you try to make it do what you want it to do um which is what i see in things like what Zack snyder crafts is that he's crafting something he has these things in superman and batman them and he wants to make them do certain things that he thinks they should be doing versus an anthropological point of view, which is you come to the characters in this case or the properties and you take in what they're capable of Mm. and you try to understand them and then you work within them. And I think that's part of what's so successful in the Marvel universe. And for me, it's also what makes it so identifiable and so relatable as a comic book fan is that I can see not only these characters I recognize, but I recognize their essence. I recognize their stories. I recognize the little bits and pieces that I can see here that have been woven in because they're dealing with something that's been completely deconstructed when it moves from a comic book to a a, a movie or a television show. They, they of course, have to take it apart and put it back together, and they put it back together differently, but they've not discarded the parts. They simply Mm -hmm. repurpose them or they... You know, of course, they combine things and they blend characters, and that's that's perfectly fine. I understand how that works, but I think they pay homage to that essence of those characters, and they don't try to force them to be something they're not. They let them be who they are, and they work with that. They work within the stream. You know, it's like the idea is they get, you know, I think, what is it? The Ancient One says this to Stephen Strange. You cannot bend, you cannot hammer a river into submission. You have to flow with the current. So such a good line. She says that in the first movie. You have to learn to navigate the currents. And I feel like when I look at what Marvel is doing, 
they're flowing in the current. Beautiful. And when I see what Zack Snyder is doing and the fact that they tried to get to a teen movie in three movies, I kept saying the whole time, I said, I'm going to watch it, but I just see a disaster here because I don't think you've earned it. You've not built the story. You've not built the world. You've not built, you've t- you're, you're taking swings to the fences when you don't even have the framework. I mean, you, you know, and at least not here. You I mean, you're relying very heavily on the framework from the comic books and the instant recognition, but you haven't reapplied it to this situation the way Marvel did. And it's because he's trying to hammer the river to do, make it do what he wants. So, and I think that's why it doesn't work. You know, I mean, because I'm literally using the Marvel's own MCU lines against them, but the ancient one was right when she told Stephen Strange, you cannot hammer it to submission. You have to flow with the current. I think it's beautifully chosen line to connect here and and a really fantastic analogy. Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, for chatting a little bit about the MCU, and especially for sharing your ideas related to the presentation that the presentation that I already had some exposure to, but to hear you dig into it more here and share these these wonderful nuggets of insight and for you to share that with my listeners as well. I'm I'm very, very grateful for that. If oh, and I'll, people, I'll share with you the link. I recorded oh, a version of my presentation for the class for my class on YouTube. So if anybody wants Fantastic. to actually see a, a rough version, I'll, I'll make sure you get the link so you can include it for anybody who wants to see that. I dismissed my class that day, but I made them watch my presentation. So <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent, and I'm absolutely going to include that in the show notes. Are there any other uh, places online that people can find you or your work? Uh, well, uh, let's see. I have an Instagram, which is, what is my Instagram? I have two. I have one that's for my podcast. I do have a podcast. It's called A Rhetorical Education. I'm currently wrapping up my second season. I'm going to go on a small hiatus. I talk about a lot of things. I weave in some stuff about comic books and all kinds of stuff in there. But I am also, um, so I have a link for that one. There's an Instagram for that one. It's a rhetorical underscore education underscore beyond. That's the link for that where I share that. And then there is a, my main Instagram account is esoteric underscore by underscore design on Instagram. Um, A lot of what I share there is stuff, artwork, stuff like that. Some stuff I'm doing myself too as well. If anybody dares want to see my political discussions and some comic book scholar discussions, I am on Twitter at, uh, what is that one? I'm arching with a PhD. So let's see. Very cool. It's all one word. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, let's see. Um, arching, A-R-C-H-I-N-G-W-I-T-H-A-P-H-D. All there, one thing together. And then, of course, I do have a website, rhetor- a rhetoricaleducation.com, where I have the podcast, artwork, and all that stuff there. And I'm working on starting to share more of my scholarly stuff. In fact, you can actually find my PCA presentation link there, too. I'll send you all that so you can include in the show notes. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Jonathan. I would love to talk MCU with you again in the future. And oh, yes. Wonderful. Good luck with all of your endeavors, your books, and all of the uh, the, the artistic uh, avenues that you may be pursuing. Uh, please keep me updated on, on all of that. Of course. If you enjoyed this conversation about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you can follow the podcast at anidea underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. You can find Jonathan Evans on the internet at his website, www.arhetoricaleducation.com and other links that are in the show notes. 
As I mentioned at the top of the episode, sometime in the next couple months, the 100th episode of There Was an Idea will be dropping, and I want to make it extra special by calling for the voice of any and all former guests and listeners to participate, and you can do so by sending me a voice note, preferably, or a written message sharing one or two or three things in the MCU that you love. This will culminate in the episode 100 Things We Love in the MCU. If you'd like more details, you can listen to the previous episode that I released called There Was an Update. And of course, thank you for listening and stay tuned in the coming weeks for some thoughts on Miss Marvel.